the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another episode. We're happy to be with you, as always. Yes. Thank you for listening. Um, we have had some interesting experiences lately, and one of them had to do with a culture day that you had with your institute staff. And I don't know if, if our listeners would benefit if you could share yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, I like to take my staff every once in a while on what I've called a culture day. We'll go to a museum. We'll, we've gone to uh, musical events. Mm -hmm. We've watched movies together and talked about it. But this time, we went to a Greek Orthodox church. Mm -hmm. It's a church I've known about since I was a little boy. It's right in my hometown where I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But I had never been there. I'd driven by it thousands of times. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh -huh. But I had never gone inside. I've always blessed myself when I've passed it because um, the Blessed Sacrament is there. Yeah. They're not in union with Rome. The Orthodox Church split about a thousand years ago, but they have a uh, valid priesthood and valid Eucharist. So Jesus is really there. And there was a feast of Saint, gosh, I wish I could remember his name, Polyphorus or Polyphonus, something like that. But anyway, this guy died in 1991. Um, he's recognized as a saint by the Orthodox Church. And uh, the, the priest reflection on this saint just ignited my heart. And he gave me a book by the saint about his life. And we had some great conversations. We went to a divine liturgy there. And then we had great conversations, my team and I, with the priest. And he took us through a little bit of a tour of the iconography of the church and some of the traditions of the East. And John Paul II, in his letter, Light of the East, invited... Uh, all Catholics, all Christians even, uh, not just Catholics, but all believers to breathe with both lungs, he said. And by that he meant we have to understand and, and appreciate the, the gifts and traditions of the West, but also the gifts and traditions of the East. And I, I really wanted to uh, tap some of the wisdom of this Orthodox priest, but we did that. We had some great conversation, but I must say the highlight of our time. Yes was during the liturgy mm -hmm. when this is an ancient liturgy written by St. John Chrysostom wow. hundreds of years ago. You know, in the early part of, the, of Christianity, this liturgy was written. And a prayer that we all pray, written by St. John Chrysostom, uh, a prayer that we pray before receiving communion. We weren't able to receive communion because of the divisions, but uh, it's, it's really Jesus. It's the real communion. Uh, <laughs> And, and there is the prayer right in the Orthodox prayer book written by St. John Chrysostom that goes like this. You have smitten me with yearning, O Christ, and by your divine eros, you have changed me. Mm. I love it. I love it. I love it. There it is right in the official liturgy of the Eastern Church. goes back to St. John Chrysostom. This cry of the heart for Jesus in the Eucharist understood as the yearning of a divine eros. And it changes us. How does it change us? It redirects our passions 
from creatures to the Creator. And how does the Creator reach us? By entering His creation. Astounding, astounding, astounding. I was kind of moaning and groaning in my pew <laughs> as that happened. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was for me and I think for some of the other staff was one of our favorite cultural experiences. Yeah. I'm so happy for all of you. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Thanks for asking about it. And do you have any other updates about the Institute? Yeah, please check out our TOB1 online that's coming up at the end of January 2021. And... We have a TOB1 live in Orlando, Florida in February. If you want to come to a warm place, you can check those things out in the links. And of course, we always appreciate if you've been blessed and touched by the work of the Theology of the Body Institute, consider becoming a patron. That helps us do the work we do. It sure does. Let's jump in with questions Let's from our do listeners. It. I have a question from Rich. Hi, Rich. He asks, what is the benefit or reason confessing sins to a priest when Jesus has already forgiven our sins once and for all. Is this based in scripture? There must be something I'm missing. Ah, love the question. And I love talking about sacraments. Confession is one of the seven sacraments. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love talking about sacraments is because it gets us right into the heart of the mystery of the incarnation. Sacraments are an extension of of God taking on flesh. We encounter Jesus, not in some kind of spiritual osmosis. We don't just get zapped in some kind of spiritual mm -hmm. way. How did Jesus forgive sins? By giving up his body, by shedding his blood. How did Jesus heal people? By touching them through the laying on of hands. Think of the woman with the, the hemorrhage, the, the bleeding mm -hmm womb. And she had been, uh, she had suffered at the hands of many doctors, it says, but she knew if I just touch the edge of his garment, yes. I'll be healed. She reached out in faith. She touched the edge of his garment. And Jesus says, who touched me? Power went out from my body. His disciples are like, well, what do you mean who touched you? There's a whole crowd of people. Everybody's telling you, no, no, no. Power went out from my body. That is an amazing one. That's wow. the key. Power goes out from his body. Mm -hmm. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus wanted to extend that power that goes out from his body. How did he do that? He laid his hands on other bodies. These bodies became the first 12 bishops. They laid their hands on other bodies, and they laid their hands on other bodies, and they laid their hands on other bodies, and they laid their hands on other bodies. In an unbreakable chain of bodies, mm that leads you to that priest in the confessional to whom you confess with your own lips, with your own tongue, with your own body. It is an encounter of two bodies, two incarnate persons. That's what we are as human beings. We are incarnate persons. And the healing of, of, of Christianity, the, the forgiveness of our sins, the, the healing of our, our ills comes to us through the body of Christ that is present sacramentally in that priest. When we confess to that priest, we are telling our sins to the body of Christ. And that priest in persona Christi puts his hands on us, says the words of absolution, and the power that flowed out of Jesus's body through an unbreakable chain of bodies reaches our body. Yes, Ours is the faith 
of the body of Christ. Ours is the faith of the Word made flesh. We must not unflesh our enfleshed religion. We must not excarnate the incarnate Christ. Mm. That's the logic of the sacraments. It carries the whole way through all of the seven sacraments. Is it a biblical principle? Absolutely, it's a biblical principle. Jesus said to those first apostles, apostles, (laughs) (laughs) Jesus said to those first apostles, those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Those whose sins you bind or do not forgive, they are not forgiven. Mm. The power to forgive sins is granted by Christ to the apostles in an unbreakable chain the whole way down to present day. Uh, This is the Catholic faith. So the church believes that the fullness of Christ's power and healing and forgiveness comes through his sacraments. The church also teaches that the Lord is not bound by his sacraments. So we, we, we don't want to say it is impossible for one's sins to be forgiven if one does not go to confession. But we know that one's sins can be forgiven and are forgiven if one does go to confession. Mm-hmm. So why would you ever not want to do that? Right? This is this is just the, the church's teaching here is is not trying to say, well, don't go to confession because you can still get your sins forgiven else uh, in another way. It's it's simply recognizing the fact that not everybody has the opportunity to go to confession. Mm-hmm. And and Christ is not bound by his sacraments, but we know the fullness of his grace flows through his sacraments. So let's take every opportunity to go to those sacraments, to be Mm. blessed by those sacraments. There are few happier moments in my life than when my confessor puts his hands on me and says, I absolve you of your sins. And that is Christ through his body reaching my body. It's real it's signed, it's sealed, mm-hmm. it's delivered. Rich does make the point, and, and rightly so, that our sins are forgiven through what Christ did on the cross once and for all. But we have to accept that forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It's not a magic trick. It's not like a snap of the fingers. It's not a wipe away, they're all gone. Um, the power of forgiveness is given in Christ's death and resurrection once and for all. But God respects our freedom. So we have to say yes to that. We have to open to receive that. And again, it's not in some kind of spiritual osmosis. It comes concretely through the body of Christ extended in those who are properly ordained to the priesthood. That's that unbroken chain of power flowing from Christ's body to reach our bodies. I love that. And one of the applications of that is just you you can't go to confession over Zoom or Skype. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. You can't, even if you think you have a secure private link, you have to be bodily. Body present. to body, yep. It's been a beautiful thing to see ways that even during pandemic lockdowns, priests have made arrangements to have these kind of cars right. drive up confessions and right it's just beautiful and it is a, you're right wendy it is a testimony to the incarnate reality mm-hmm. of grace reaching us yes our next question is a question from liam liam says pope francis just announced the year of saint joseph what misconceptions about this amazing saint would you like to see cleared up during this year oh it's a great question thanks liam i love St. Joseph. 
I don't love the caricature of St. Joseph that we often get. Uh, we we to have this tendency to think of Joseph as, well, there's one tradition that thinks he was an old man. We see this in a lot of Catholic artwork. Joseph is presented as an old man. I was just watching a video oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, with Isaac, our son, the other day, and there's this picture of this looks like a great grandfather holding <laughs> this little baby Jesus on his lap. I don't like that. <laughs> nor does St. John Paul II like this, nor does Bishop Fulton Sheen like this. Um, Bishop Fulton Sheen says, uh, we, we got this idea of, of protecting Mary's chastity by making Joseph old. Mm. And he says, you don't, you, you don't protect Mary's chastity by presenting Joseph as some dried up stream, mm. you know, that has no water running through it. He he was, uh, Fulton Sheen says he was in the in the the, the throes of his vital youth, mm. and it is that vital youth that was sanctified mm. by the presence of the incarnate Word in the womb of the Immaculate Conception. I mean, imagine the heights of sanctity available to Joseph, living 24-7 in the presence of the Immaculate Conception and the Word made flesh. Yeah. Um, well, guess what? We have that same opportunity through the sacraments, right? Through the sacramental life of the Church, through baptism, through confession, through Eucharist. Uh, and Jesus promised He'd never leave us, and our, our Mama Mary never leaves us either. So it's not like we're living in the house of Nazareth like Joseph, but through the grace that comes to us mm -hmm. in the sacramental life and in prayer, uh, we have similar opportunities to be sanctified. This is the point. I think there's been a suspicion about the real possibilities of sexual virtue. Yeah. It seems so difficult. I, I, and it, I, I, am, I'm, I, I get it on the one hand because, yeah, we all struggle here and it seems almost insurmountable, and on our own strength it is. But don't we believe that selfish people can become unselfish? Don't we believe that that prideful people can become humble? Mm. Don't we believe that um, arrogant people can become uh, meek? Uh, why would we think that lustful people can't become chaste? Mm -hmm. Again, it's not a, a negation of something. Chastity is not a negation of erotic desire. Chastity is the purification of erotic desire. And we see this exemplified so beautifully in the Song of Songs. And I like to say, nobody lived the glory of the Song of Songs like Joseph and Mary. Their love was not cold. Their, it's not like they slept in separate rooms. Mm. You know, I've heard things said like, again, this is all in this attempt to protect Mary's chastity, thinking Joseph couldn't have been virtuous. I've heard things said like, <laughs> Joseph was so chaste that he never would have witnessed Christ feeding at the breast of, of Mary. Or Joseph was so chaste, he never would have been present at the birth of the Lord. Uh, John Paul II says that Joseph was an eyewitness to the miracle of the birth of the Lord. It was his purity of heart mm. that enabled him to gaze upon Mary's breast when Christ was nursing at it and see the glory of God revealed, see the holy, see the beautiful. Yeah. And, and the miracle of his birth, Joseph was right there, says St. John Paul II, witnessing through Mary's body the glory of God revealed. Purity of heart. This is So back to the question, what, yeah. what are the misconceptions of Joseph that I would love to see corrected? 
I would love to see this, this false notion of purity corrected with the true notion of purity of heart corrected. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Our idea of purity is often puritanism, a fearful rejection mm. of the body. John Paul II says, purity is the glory of God revealed through the human body. It is God's glory in and through the human body. Joseph witnessed this like nobody else through the body of Mary and through the body of his son, the Word made flesh. And here I said the body of his son. And this is another correction I want to see. Mm -hmm. I get it, I get it, I get it. This language that you'll see oftentimes in literature about Joseph being the foster father of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I get it, I get it. Uh, We're trying to protect the fact that the only real father of, of Jesus is the eternal father. We're trying to protect the fact that it was not via Joseph's seed that Christ was conceived. I get it, I get it. That needs to be protected. But I don't think foster father is the right language. John Paul II says in his marvelous letter, Guardian of the Redeemer. Mm. Guardian of the Redeemer is about? Is about St. Joseph. Joseph. Uh, He says that Joseph's fatherhood is, is not a biological fatherhood, but it is not a substitute fatherhood. It is not a merely kind of peripheral fatherhood. It is real fatherhood. He really was the father of Jesus, not in the sense of having uh, Jesus being his biological child, but he was the father of this family. Mm-hmm. And, and here we can even go a step further, and I think, I think we're, we're preparing for a new phase and a new stage in the church's understanding of St. Joseph. And I see Pope Francis's declaration here as, as a, a, a movement in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to come to understand Joseph's role in the Holy Family is so much more than a foster fatherhood. Mm. I believe Joseph's virginity, and you can, you can see this in the writing of, of some of the saints uh, where they hint at this, that Joseph's virginity also played a role, not the same role as Mary's virginity, because Mary was the biological mother of Jesus, right? right. But nonetheless, as I once heard it said, I wish I could cite the source, I don't remember it right off the top of my head. Joseph was the father in the sense that Jesus truly issued from their virginal marriage. So somehow Joseph, Joseph's virginal yes is not just some kind of tack-on to the Holy Family. Mm-hmm. Somehow his virginal yes also played a role. It's mysterious, I can't explain it. But I think we're moving in the right direction when we recognize Joseph is not a tack-on here. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, we have this woman who's pregnant. Um, this doesn't look very good. Hmm, how can we make this look nicer? Um, uh, here, Joseph, could you come in and stand in here and make yeah. this look better? Can you come be in this picture with yeah, us? Yeah, can you be in this picture with <laughs> us? No, no, he's not a tack-on. Yeah. His virginal yes to Mary is integral to this to the picture of the Holy Family. Mm. Here's, here's another thing I want to say, and... I could say so much as you can tell. (laughs) Uh, I have to pick and choose. But here's one final thing I'll pick. We have this idea that Joseph wanted to leave Mary. Remember it says in the scripture he wanted to divorce her quietly. We have this idea that that Joseph wanted to leave Mary because he thought she cheated on him. I think that's all wrong. Mm -hmm. 
And, and you will see that in, in the writings of various saints and things. It's been a common reflection that makes sense at the surface that Joseph was shocked that Mary's pregnant and mm-hmm. thinks, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to divorce her because she cheated on me. Uh, I think a, a closer read of the, of the scripture does not lend itself to this interpretation. And you'll see in the writings of, for example, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Thomas Aquinas, and, and several others where they say Joseph wanted to leave, not because he thought Mary was unfaithful, but because he knew this was the fulfillment of the prophecy Mm. that a virgin will conceive. Ah. Joseph knows he's in the presence of the all-holy. He's in the presence of Emmanuel in her womb, God with us. And it's for the same reason that Peter said, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Oh, wow, that's a beautiful comparison. That Joseph wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if, you th- if you read that passage with a different emphasis, <laughs> where it says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home, because that which is conceived in her is, is of the Holy Spirit. We, that's the way we typically hear it. And it's like, Joseph, no, 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 don't, don't, don't leave. She didn't cheat on you. It's the Holy Spirit who, who brought about the right. conception. But listen to the same verse with a different emphasis. Okay. St. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Mm. In other words, it's because this child is conceived of the Holy Spirit that he's afraid. Mm, that this he is, needs that reassurance yes, that he's really the one God he's wants. He's really the one God wants to be in this holy mm. family. Mm. And to get that interpretation right, we have to go back to, again, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is right out of Thomas Aquinas. This is right out of uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, to get this interpretation right, we have to look at Joseph, son of David. Mm. Joseph is the fulfillment of David. David tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and one of his servants reached out to touch it without the proper reverence and was killed. Mm. Right? This is just this is just the shadow of Mary, the ark of the old covenant. Right. What was the ark? It was the gold box that contained the Ten Commandments, the word of the Lord, and the bread from heaven, right? Okay. Well, the word has been made flesh, and the bread has come down from heaven, mm-hmm. and the ark is Mary. Mm. David learned. He gave. He didn't want to bring the ark into Jerusalem after that happened to his mm-hmm. servant. So he gave the ark to, uh, I think it was Obadidim. He said, here, Obadidim, you take the ark. Let's see what happens to you. <laughs> and Obadidim took the ark into his home, and because of their reverence, the whole family flourished. Then David understood. Ah, reverence. Mm-hmm. He prayed for reverence. Reverence is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends. And with reverence, David brings the ark into Jerusalem. And the way that reverence was manifested in David was he stripped his clothes down to this little loincloth and danced this wild dance of Mm. celebration and joy. Mm. If we bring that story with us into Joseph, son of David, Mm -hmm. do not be afraid to bring Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, into your home. Imagine the fulfillment of David's dance in Joseph. Mm. That'll paint a very different picture than our hyper-pietistic images of Joseph. Uh, So those are some of the corrections I want to see. And I'd sum it up like this. 
You know, when I was a kid, we got those holy cards, and Joseph almost always had a perfect manicure, rosy cheeks, and he was holding flowers. And I get the symbol of flowers as a symbol of purity. That's all fine and good. But I want to see Joseph with dirt under his fingernails. Right. This guy's a carpenter. Yeah. I want to see him with calloused hands. Yeah. I want to see him give me some big sweat marks under yeah. his arms. I want to see this guy as a laborer. I want to see him with the biceps. I want to see him as yeah. as a man. Yes. That's what I want to see. And and I think we have every reason we do, of course, to say Joseph was a manly man. I love what you're saying about masculinity and the masculine genius almost well, in thanks. your answer. There's, uh, you know, your first comment about um, just that Joseph in his prime, in his, you know, full vitality. Yeah. Um, what, what a calling that is to men to kind of embrace the power of masculinity in imitation of St. Joseph instead yes. of kind of, you know, regret somehow the power of masculinity as kind of a threat or something. I also loved that part where you talked about, uh, you know, G Joseph needing to realize that really he is the one that God is calling to this role and, and how many men need that assurance. Yeah. Like, yes. You, I mean you. I, I'm yeah. calling you, and what a gift for men in those ways in this year of Saint Joseph. I know also um, there's a book, uh, Consecration to Jesus through Saint Joseph, mm -hmm. um, that's available through the Theology of the Body. Yes, Institute. written by uh, co-written by Jen Settle, and was it uh, Dr. Gregory Bataro. Greg Bataro. That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. Yeah. So that may be of interest to our listeners. Yeah. We'll put well. a, a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And we'll also put in the show notes some, some of these uh, specific quotes that I'm kind of paraphrasing from okay. Thomas Aquinas and others. Uh, Fulton Sheen, I'll put in some there from JP2 as well. So you can read directly what they have said yeah. about St. Joseph. And just from my memory, I was paraphrasing and, it. So. And, and John Paul's document on St. Joseph is called... Redemptoris Custos, Guardian of the Redeemer. Excellent. And I haven't read it yet, but uh, Pope Francis has come out with his own document okay. to start this year of St. Joseph. Wonderful. So we'll put a link to that as well. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. So I have a question from Maria. She says, hello, West. Hello, Maria. Christopher, I've heard you speak about the mysteries of Our Lady of Guadalupe in talks, but I'm curious if you could give a recap of this miracle and its relevance to Theology of the Body in our current world. Certainly. I'm happy to go right from, from uh, St. Joseph to, to Mary. <laughs> we were talking about St. Joseph in that last question. Okay, so Our Lady of Guadalupe, if you want to get some more details here, uh, I'd recommend a great book by um, Monsignor Eduardo Chavez and Carl Anderson. Uh, they wrote a book, I think it's called Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, and the Civilization of Love or something. Anyway, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, and you could also uh, watch my talk, a longer talk, on the YouTube channel here where I, I go through some of the, the symbols of the tilma. And we'll put a link for that in the show notes as well. But here are some, some just brief uh, insights into the Tilma. First, a little bit of the story for those who may not know. 500 years ago, 1532, uh, Juan Diego, a native uh, Mexican, uh, not of European descent, but of the, the native stock, shall we say, mm. of Mexico, was walking uh, up a hill, and he heard song, a song of birds, and 
started to see these roses and smell these roses that were growing. This is December. This was not the time for roses. And he knew something was extraordinary. Something was different. And he climbed this hill, and there is an image before him, an apparition of a beautiful mm -hmm. woman mm -hmm. who revealed herself to Juan Diego as Mary, the mother of God. And she asked for a chapel to be built on this hill. So he had to go to the bishop to get permission, and, and the bishop, understandably, well, uh, how do I know this is really Mary? Why don't you, if she comes to you again, ask for a sign? And Mary did appear again and told Juan Diego to gather these flowers in his cloak. He was wearing a cloak called a tilma, mm -hmm. which was the cloak of, of laborers, of poor people. And he gathered these roses in the tilma, went to the bishop, unfolded the tilma, the roses came out, and imprinted on the tilma was this miraculous image of Mary. Mm. And this image of Mary spoke the language of the gospel to the Aztec people, to their in their in their own language, using their own symbols, using their own uh, well, they didn't have an alphabet like we do. They had what you would call a codex, a series of symbols and and images that conveyed their language. And and every star and every flower on the tilma is speaking this language to the Aztecs. Number one, uh, here's what the Aztecs saw. The way Mary's hair is done on the tilma, mm -hmm. it's parted in the middle. This was the way virgins wore their hair. Okay. So they look at it and they see it's a virgin. And then they see what might seem a contradiction. Uh, she has a ribbon over her womb, which was an indication that an Aztec woman was pregnant. Mm. And then below the, the ribbon, Right above her womb is a four-petaled flower, which was the symbol of divinity wow. for the Aztec people. So they look at this tilma, they see virgin pregnant with God. Wow. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, similarly, the colors of her clothing, the, the outer garment uh, that Mary is wearing is a teal color, symbol of the heavens. The inner garment is an earthen tone. And so we have here uh, a creature of the earth, but she's clothed in the glory of heaven. Mm. Uh, there's an angel below her holding the, the image of heaven, that part of the garment, and holding the garment that symbolizes the part of the earth. And through that angel, there is a unity, a uniting, even a, we wow. could say, and these are all, this is the spousal imagery of scripture, there is a marriage between heaven and earth. Uh, ever, the angels, the purpose of the angels, they are messengers of God, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they love to announce the marriage of heaven and earth. This is what Gabriel did with Mary. Mm -hmm. Gabriel announced to Mary the marriage of heaven and earth in her womb. This angel at the base of the tilma is proclaiming to the Aztec people the marriage of heaven and earth that is consummated in Mary's womb. So those are just a few of the many, many things we could mm, say about yeah. what the tilma proclaims. Uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing, which I think is very important, that she appeared, her skin color is that of a mestiza, and that means a mixed race. She's part European and she's part native, uh, native Mexican. What is the significance of that? Here we see that Mary is entering into a deep shame and a deep wound of the native people. When the Europeans came, um, many of them plundered the native peoples and raped the women. Mm. Uh, horrific crimes against human dignity. Mm. 
And the fruit of these sexual unions were the mestiza children, Mm -hmm. who were most often just abandoned, uh, left to die, or if they survived, they, they ended up living in the streets. This was a, not really loved by either of their parents. Correct. Wow. And this was a source of, of great shame among the people. Mary here, by appearing as a mestiza, is showing her willingness to bring herself and bring Jesus right into mm-hmm. the midst of our deepest pains, wounds, and shameful experiences to mm-hmm. bring about healing and redemption both for those who were wounded, the native people, and for the Europeans who inflicted this, she wants to bring the mercy and the justice of the Lord. Justice and mercy always go together. It's a healing justice uh, that is always clothed in mercy. She wants to bring this healing into our sexual wound. So relevance to theology of the body The tilma proclaims the theology of the body, which is the marriage of heaven and earth consummated in the bridal chamber of Mary's womb. That's the declaration of the tilma. That's the declaration of the gospel. And the tilma is is proclaiming the gospel in the language of the people. If there is to be a new evangelization, uh, we must turn to the tilma to learn this, this process of enculturation of the gospel. Without changing the gospel, without changing the message, we have to learn how to put it in the language of the people we're trying to reach. This is why I appeal so often in my teaching to the movies and the music uh, mm-hmm. of the culture. It's my attempt to enculturate the gospel, just like Mary did with the Codex uh, of, of the native people of Mexico. I, I love so many things about all that you just shared there, um, really, just affecting to hear you talk about it. Um, I also love just the, the miracles there, you know, Juan Diego having an apparition, seeing Mary. Oh, how How can we even imagine? Yeah. He saw her. And when he collected those flowers, he didn't know there was going to be something on his tilma. The flowers themselves were the sign, you know, like, Hey, there are these roses. What are they doing here? They don't belong here at this time. That's my miracle. I'll bring it to the bishop. And she had something so much more miraculous for this bishop and for all the people who would come to see the image. And that image is so miraculous that the tilma, which shouldn't have lasted 500 years, is still hanging in a church in Mexico City. You've seen it more than one time. The image is beautiful on there. Nobody can identify a way that it was put onto right. the, those five. Yeah, it is truly a miraculous it's image that defies science. Just coming through into history in this powerful way. Like, we can just, like, if we can just pause, you know, and take that in how much love God has, how much love Mary has for every person on earth, her care for those orphans for all those wounded people that needed the truth it's it's really awesome i want to say one more thing about roses okay why this is what the saints say and the the visionaries say that when mary shows up they smell this mysterious sweet scent of roses Mm -hmm. why 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 well what is a rose what is a flower 
A flower is one of nature's most beautiful reproductive organs. We don't tend to think of it that way, but just harken back to high school science class and you will remember that's what a flower actually mm -hmm. is. It's where pollination happens. It's where so pollination seeds happens. seeds and new plants come. And the flower being this symbol of new life, of, of reproducing life, think of it, all of creation is designed by God to be life-giving. And the life-giving processes of all of creation are fulfilled super abundantly in Mary's womb. Every blade of grass, every flower, every tree, every living thing that lives and reproduces is pointing, if you have eyes to see, it's pointing to the mystery of the Annunciation, of Mary opening the garden of her womb to the seed that fell from heaven into her fertile soil. Why does Jesus so often talk about uh, the, the reproductive processes of nature? He says, pay attention to the trees and when they bud. Pay attention to how the wildflowers grow. Uh, the kingdom of heaven can be likened to a farmer who sowed seed, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Uh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like the farmer who goes out and sows the seed and he doesn't know how it grows. It's mysterious, but there it is, it grows. Mm -hmm. Why is Jesus always talking about nature's fertility? Nature's fertility culminates in the fertility of Mary's womb. We see this in the Mass, because what are we doing in the Mass? In the Mass, we are literally putting nature's fertility on the altar, right? Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this bread to offer. Fruit of the earth, work of human hands. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this wine to offer. Fruit of the vine, work of human hands. We are putting nature's fertility mm. on the altar. And then the priest prays for the heavenly dewfall and the fruit of the earth. The fertility of nature becomes the fertility of Mary's womb. Why do we have flowers surrounding the altar at Mass? Why is it essential in the church's rubrics for the liturgy that the candles be made of beeswax? Flowers and bees, what's mm -hmm. going on here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a great mystery, and I want to point this out. Mary doesn't smell like roses. As I love to point out, roses smell like Mary. And my point here is Mary's not trying to imitate the lower forms of, of nature's fertility. The lower forms of nature's fertility are trying to imitate her. They're pointing to her. She's not pointing back to them. <laughs> They're all pointing to her. What the saints are smelling, what Juan Diego smelled, what was symbolized by those roses, were smelling the, the, the fertility of Mary's garden. You're a garden enclosed, my sister, my bride. That's from the Song of Songs, and it's fulfilled in Mary. What was the fragrance like in that cave where Jesus was born? I, I like to imagine like the, the ox and the ass just passing out, mm -hmm. and, and Joseph passing out from the glory of it. <laughs> uh, this, this is where these mysteries lead us if we're willing to, to enter in. What does it mean to pray the rosary? Why do we call it the rosary? A rosary is a rose garden. We're meant to be entering into the mystery of Mary's rose garden. Glory be to God in the highest. That's 
for now. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and on and on, but I have to discipline myself and stop. If you've enjoyed these questions and answers today, please hit that share button and get the message out to other people who need to hear it. Uh, we also appreciate your support. If you want to become a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute, it goes a long way to help us continue to do this work for you, which we're so honored to do. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks again for listening. Until next time, remember, as always, you are an unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.